0: And then he says something very interesting in verse 47. It says, they, they devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. They devour widows' houses. What is he referring to? In one of the commentaries it says, in that day a Jewish teacher could not be paid for teaching. So what they could do is receive gifts from people. Apparently many scribes used flattery, manipulation to get big gifts from those who could least afford to give them, namely widows in that culture who were not, didn't have the means to take care of themselves and so they were being abused by the religious leaders of Jesus' time. So that's the lead-in to the first part of this chapter and the story, the account that Jesus gives in the temple, here he is, the temple of God, preaching in the temple. Um, he's, He's there, he's in his last days, he's gonna continue there right up until the end. But look at verses one to four, here's the account of the widow's offering. It says, as Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. So he's in the temple, and he just is watching. And there in the court of women, which was the outer court, it was the first court that you could enter into, would be these 13 pots, these 13 horn-shaped brass receptacles where people would come and give their gifts in the treasury there. Six of them were specifically labeled free will offerings. So if you just, out of your free will, wanted to support the temple and those that served in the temple, you would just come and give your money into these receptacles that were labeled as such. And so Jesus is just watching these. And he contrasts those who are wealthy with this poor widow. Probably what he was referring to is as he was watching the wealthy give, there might have been a little show put on. We've seen this already uh, with the way that they prayed, just the way that they acted. Maybe there was something going on that kind of struck Jesus differently. And so he said, hmm, kind of recorded that in his mind. Then he saw this poor widow come. She puts in two of these small copper coins. These coins were known as lepta. That was the name of these coins. They were the smallest coin in use. They were Jewish coins. They were worth about 1% of a denarius. Last week we talked about the denarius, Remember Emperor Tiberius, given to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God. That was a denarius that was being used. It was about a day's wage. That's what it was used. This lepta was worth about 1% of a day's wage. Or scholars have kind of tried to figure out what it would be in our terms, about one-eighth or one-tenth of a penny. Does that give you a little sense of what these coins were? They were... In fact, the word lepta literally means a tiny thing. Isn't that apropos for what was going on? And there were two of them that this widow gave and put in the receptacle. Now, in their time, worshipers were not allowed to give less than that, less than two lepta. There was kind of a, that was kind of the you know, bare minimum of what you were to give that would have been socially acceptable. But we get a picture of Jesus knows what's going on this was more than a minimal offering for this lady. This was a huge part of what she had, a huge part. And so Jesus points that out. And what's interesting, she didn't know Jesus was watching her, but she knew God was. So she didn't know that Jesus was going to take this story and use it as an example, but she was coming there honoring God and doing what she knew was right, and she wanted she giving from her heart. So Jesus concludes in verses three to four. He uses it as a teaching time. This poor widow has put in more than all the others. Not in quantity, but in God's eyes. She's given more than all of the others who have given. Her gift was different. It was given out of poverty, Jesus says, not out of wealth or surplus. Whole different frame of reference here for her. Jesus did not say this, by the way, to disparage those who were generous and who are large donors in any means. Those are important, too. But what he was saying is he was encouraging those who had little to give in spite of the fact that they had little. And that's what Jesus was saying here. In your note taker, four points to consider. I just kind of put these out to think about. When it comes to giving, the posture of our heart makes all the difference. It's the spirit of the gift that determines the value rather than the amount of the gift. First Corinthians thirteen three. if I give all I possess to the poor, give my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, guess what? I gain nothing. It's the hard attitude. I can give all that I have, but if I don't do it with the right heart and the right attitude, guess what? It's of no value in God's eyes. So when it comes to giving, it's the spirit of the gift, not the amount that really matters in God's eyes. Secondly, giving that pleases God is giving that costs us. Sacrificial giving, we call this. There's a great verse back in the book of 2 Samuel 24. This is David. He's building an altar to God, and he is going to purchase a threshing floor from a Jebusite individual and he wants to pay this individual to purchase this this place to build this altar. Here's what David says and I find this verse very convicting. The king replied to Aaronah, "No." Aaronah, by the way said, "Hey, you're the king. It's yours. You know, please don't pay." But here's David's response, "No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice the Lord my God burn offerings that cost me nothing." sacrificial, David says. It's gonna cost me, and I don't feel right about just giving if it doesn't cost a little bit. There's a principle there, I think. God can do, number three, God can do great things with tiny offerings. That's what lepta meant, tiny thing. God can do great things with that. The Lord has converted those two coins into a perennial wealth of instruction and motivation for his church. Look at down through the ages how... God has used this account, this story, to inspire us through the inspiration of Scripture, the giving of tiny things for him by this widow. Number four, at the judgment, Christ will square accounts. What do I mean by that? There's no, we don't have any evidence that this widow knew that Jesus saw her. We really don't know that. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. There's no evidence that she became prosperous in this life. She may or may not have, most likely not, to be honest, but we do know she'll receive a future reward. That's the key, and that's the reminder for us, is the reward might not be in this life, but it is in God's eyes for future reward in the next. Just some questions to ask ourselves. Again, I put these in the note-taker to think about. Number one, how do we give? Grudgingly or willingly, willingly. 2 Corinthians 9 7 tells us this. says, Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Isn't that a beautiful picture of giving? See, again, it's not how much do we give. That's not the question here. It's how. With what motivation, what heart, what spirit? In New Testament, in Old Testament, it was a tithe, 10%, and that's a good measure. New Testament teaching on giving is about our heart and how to give. So it's not about, again, it's not about the amount, but how are we going about this and what is our heart behind it? Does our giving cost us anything? Something to think about. What is our attitude when we're not being watched? And I put that with a little bit of being facetious because in reality, we are. Again, the widow thought she was just doing something you know, with nobody watching, but Jesus was, and God was. So how do we give when we feel like nobody's watching, in a sense, even though God is overseeing that? So these are things to think about, our values. When it comes to living our lives in the last days, what is our attitude? Are we generous? Are we giving? And that's a great story. But then he continues on in, the, in this next section. He talks about our future. Look at verses five through 11. I just want to break it into pieces here. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, "As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another." Every one of them will be thrown down. That's quite a, (laughs) okay. Teacher, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived for many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprising, do not be frightened. These things must happen first but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, pestilence in various places, fearful events, and great signs from heaven. Okay, so they went from enjoying the beauty of the temple, and it was a beautiful thing, to not one stone left upon another and beware of what's coming. So what's going on here? That's quite a quantum leap that Jesus does. But he wants to teach his disciples something here that's very important. This section is referred to as the Olivet Discourse. It's found in Matthew 24 and 25. It's found in, in Mark 13 and in this chapter in Luke. In, specifically in Matthew, it's a much more expounded discourse. The disciples, he's responding to more questions in the book of Matthew, verses 24 and 25, but it's very similar. And wouldn't it be amazing, I thought about this, wouldn't it be amazing to be with Jesus on the Mount of Olives, looking across the Kidron Valley west to Jerusalem, seeing the temple and the city of Jerusalem over there on the hill adjacent, and have Jesus explain to you what's gonna be happening in relationship to a city and the temple, as well as in relationship to the world as a whole. Imagine being there with Jesus that day, what that would be like. And as I was reading this, I was just trying to go, wow, it would have blown my mind. And it, that's exactly what happened with his disciples. This was amazing to hear, but what a wonderful opportunity. There's three important points that Jesus wants to teach his disciples in this section as we move through. Number one, Jesus is stating there will be an interval of time between his end of his ministry and his ascension to heaven and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So he's gonna address that issue in this section. It's coming, it's a few years down the road. Number two, Luke wants his readers to distinguish between the events of 70 AD, which is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which happened and was very important, and the coming of the Son of Man. Why do I say that? Because there's a view out there when we get to the book of Revelation, and I think we talked about this a little bit when we taught the book. It's called the preterist view, meaning this. Simply, some people feel that all the events written in the book of Revelation about end time things were all covered in the period of the Roman period when they destroyed the temple and they destroyed Jerusalem. And so they read the book of Revelation very differently. And I think Jesus, in this chapter, we get a sense they're very different events, although the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple is a backdrop upon which Jesus uses and references, as does Matthew and Mark, for events that are gonna come in the future. So he wants to distinguish between them. And number three, Luke is seeking to show his reader that future sufferings were predicted for his disciples. It's a part of God's plan. So we're gonna see today the immediate future, we're gonna see the near future, and we're gonna see the distant future. And I'll explain what I mean. And there's three sections kind of corresponding with those three things. This is the third time in the book of Luke where this destruction of Jerusalem has been referenced. In chapter 13, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. I would have loved to have gathered them, like a mother hen would gather her chicks. Then in the, as he's on the donkey, as he's going down the Mount of Olives, and there's all the rejoicing, I preached on this a couple weeks ago, all the rejoicing, The branches are being thrown down, palm branches, celebration, Jesus weeps. And he talks about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in pretty good detail there in chapter 19. So this is now the third time where this has been referenced here in this book. When we speak of the temple, it's important to understand what we're talking about and the temple that would have been there in Jesus' day. It started with Solomon, as we know in the Old Testament, where God said, David, I will not allow you to build the temple, but your son will. And so the temple was built back there in the Old Testament with Solomon, and it was a grand temple. But in 587 B.C., the Babylonians came and destroyed it, wiped it out, and the Israelites were carried off into captivity. Then the Israelites were allowed to return, and Zerubbabel, there's a great name if you're looking for a name to... You know, give to one of your children, grandkids, whatever. There it is. Zerubbabel, Ezra, Haggai in the Old Testament, the prophet talks about this, the rebuilding. So there was a temple rebuilt on the very site where Solomon's temple was on a smaller scale than Solomon's, but it was there and it was rebuilt, and the people of Israel were were back in the land. That was done in 515 B.C. But in the time between then and the time of this chapter... Starting in 20 B.C. to 63 A.D., a period of 80 years, Herod the Great had been expanding this temple to the point where it was beyond Solomon's temple. It was incredible, and it was one of his great building projects that he had undertaken. And so when the disciples were marveling at this place, it was a beautiful temple, It was literally huge. It was more than double the size of the one that was built upon the return of the people. And the disciples were admiring the stones and the gifts that had been given to adorn the temple. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us these stones, 45 cubits long, 75 feet, give or take, 75 feet long, five cubits high, so about seven and a half feet high, and then about nine feet, or six cubits wide. Wow, these were large stones, and they were beautiful. And with all the gold and the marble that was on the exterior and the facade of this temple, it was just this grand thing. So as they were looking across the valley and looking at the temple, and the sun was shining on it, it shone. Uh, Josephus records, he says, from a distance when the sun shone on these stones, the temple appeared to be a snow-clad mountain. It was just this incredible vista of beauty, and it almost hurt your eyes to look at. It was incredible. But Jesus says not one stone is going to be left on another. What he's referring to is in 70 AD when Titus comes, His first instruction to his army was, don't destroy the temple, it's a thing of beauty. But one of his soldiers set it on fire. And at that point, Titus said, well, let's just take the temple down and the rest of the city. And history records for us that the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, literally pulled the stones apart to get to the gold that was there. That's the reference that Jesus taught, not one stone going to be left upon another. They were so greedy for the gold that they could get. So all these things happened in the year 70 AD. These things in verse 8 and 9 must happen first, but the end will not come right away. It's going to happen, but the signs of the end, that's a different matter Jesus says. It's important to keep them distinct. There will be a gap of time until the Lord's return. And he says in Many false messiahs will come, many false teachers and we know from history that there were false messiahs in that first century in that time. People already coming claiming to be the one. The end is near. We have that today too, don't we? Guess what? The world's going to end on billboards, books, right? They're out there. So. That wasn't unique to Jesus' time, I mean, it continues on. That's something that's out there. And then he talks about wars and natural catastrophes, starting in verse 10. So he goes from things that are probably more close to his time in first century, then he shifts gears a little bit in 10, 11, to things that are much broader, worldwide catastrophes things that are, you're going to, cosmic signs. So he's taking us on a quick trip from that day through looking to the end of time. But then he takes a little, he steps back, and look at what it says in verse 12. But he says, okay, I've given you a broad panorama, but before all of this, let me read this next section. Before all this, They will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues. They'll put you in prison. You will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, sisters, relatives, and friends. Hmm. And they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm, and you will win life. Isn't that a beautiful thing? So from verses 12 through 19, immediate future, before all that, I've got something I need to tell you, and he's talking to the men that were sitting around him on the Mount of Olives. Here's in your future right immediately, coming in weeks and months here, before all this. So they're gonna seize you and persecute you and put you in prison, Acts four, one through four. What is he really talking about? He's talking about his next book, Luke, the book of Acts. That's where we're gonna be in the fall Luke is volume one. Acts is volume two, written by the same author. There's things that are going to happen to you. So look what Acts 4, 1 to 4 says. It says the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people. They were proclaiming in Jesus resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John because it was evening. And they put them in jail until the next day, but many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000, is it happening, yeah, it's happening, here it is, they're going to seize you, they're going to persecute you, they're going to put you in prison, guess what, that's, exact, that's the story of Acts, isn't it, that we're going to be seeing, they're going to hand you over to synagogues, there's going to be religious persecution, that was the story of Stephen, Acts 6 and 7, he was before the Sanhedrin there and he spoke of Christ and he was stoned to death. They're going to bring you before kings and governors. Acts 24 talks about Governor Felix when Paul is brought before him to give his defense. Acts 25 is King Agrippa, king of the Jews there and Paul testifies before him. So all of this is going to happen to the disciples in a very short period of time. But verse 13 says, you will bear testimony to me Don't fear persecution. See persecution as an opportunity to bear witness of me. I'm not telling you this to cause fear in your heart, Jesus says. I'm telling you this so you're prepared for it and so you seize it as an opportunity to share and to bear testimony. Verse 14, 15, don't worry beforehand what you're going to say. What that literally means there, don't practice or memorize your reply ahead of time. I see this in my mind. I immediately went to index cards. Ever did that when you were studying in college? You've got all your answers on index cards. You start rifling through them. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't worry about it. Trust me. You have a resurrected Lord. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling you That will give you the words and the wisdom to speak that your persecutors will not be able to match. That's a great promise. Look at verse 16. You're not only going to be persecuted by your enemies, but by your family and your friends. Ouch. Guess what? It happened to Jesus, betrayed by a friend, a disciple put to death. It happened to me, Jesus says, it's going to happen to you. I just want to give you a heads up. Jesus even spoke about when the gospel and the kingdom came into His power, it's going to divide families. There's going to be splits over the truth of the gospel. We see it in our culture today. It was true back then. Everyone's going to hate you, verse 17. This is hyperbole. Not everyone, but it's going to feel that way. It's going to seem that way. Not a hair on your head will be harmed. What is that referring to? Back in Luke 12, verses 4 to 7, this is what Jesus had told his disciples. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you what you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Whoa. God. Don't fear man. All they can do is take your life, okay? God is the one who ultimately will determine your eternal destiny. That's an important thing to think about and take seriously. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. This idea that God is aware of, uh, even the amount of hair that we have on our head. But I think there's a, it's, it's speaking to this kind of a metaphor that none of you will suffer eternal spiritual harm, singed in the fire, so to speak. And that's what he's referring to. Stand firm, win life. I love that. Stand strong in your faith, and you will, and what that means, that term, win life, you will gain your souls. Does that sound familiar? He who loses his life for my sake will gain it. You'll gain your soul. There's eternal benefits here of standing firm in your faith. So those are the immediate future. He's speaking to his disciples. This is going to happen first, but then in verse 20, he's going to switch gears a little bit. And he's going to refer to the day when the Roman army shows up at the doors of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Here's what it says. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city, for this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. They will fall by the sword, will be taken as prisoners to all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So this is near future. It's coming up, 70 A.D., not too far down the road, beware. Destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. The audience now is changing from you, the disciples, and that's the focus, to these people those in the country around Jerusalem and the Judea. Now, it's important to point out here that if you read Matthew 24 and 5, and I encourage you to do that today, it's, it's a little bit different. Luke is bringing it a little bit closer. He's, he's defining times a little bit clearer than Matthew does in Matthew 24 and 25. Matthew talks about, and Mark, used the term abomination of desolation That has a lot of meaning and if you go to the book of Revelation, it's there. It refers to if it wasn't, if those days weren't shortened, you know, for the cause, for the sake of the elect, it says in Matthew, those days were shortened. So there's some references there that's a little bit more tied in with end time things. Luke is a little bit more precise in his and he's saying, I want to talk about this event first. Then I'm going to get to end time stuff, but here we are right here at the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 22 refers, this is a time of punishment. It's a fulfillment of what's been written. It's not arbitrary, but something deserved. You rejected me as the Messiah, Jerusalem. As I said to you, and as is spoken of in the Old Testament, there's punishment here. And the Romans are going to bring that about. Verse 23 speaks of pregnant women. Normally a blessing and a joy, now it's a curse. Pray that you're not pregnant in those days because it's going to be miserable. There's something very interesting. Eusebius, who was a historian also, who was, they call him a Christian historian, although as time went on, he denied the deity of Christ, and so he was kind of booted out. But he wrote about history of first century and he records that Christians fled to Pella during that time with the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. Pella, a city across the Jordan, south of, the, south of Galilee. It was in the region of Decapolis. And Christians took very seriously these words because of the disciples of Jesus, and they got out of town. And they escaped to this Pella, this place more up north, a trans-Jordan across the Jordan River. verse. 24 speaks of falling by the sword and taken as prisoners. Josephus records for us that over one million people were killed in Jerusalem when the Romans destroyed that city. Now, historians think he might be a little exaggerating here on his his number, but there was a lot of people that were killed and he records that 97,000 were taken captive by the Romans at that time. So what Jesus said about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple played out in history and is true. It's gonna be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. It was trampled by the Romans that day, but it's really kind of been trampled on throughout history and this is where it begins to, he begins to look into the future. It's, guess what? Israel. This is your city, but there's going to be a period of time where the Gentiles are going to kind of own it and trample it. We know through history the Islamic people have owned Jerusalem for periods of time. It's controlled today, the Temple Mount, by the Palestinians, not the Jews, and it's a source of contention. So this is played out throughout history. It's trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. What does that mean? Well, a time where God's judgment is being experienced by the Jewish people. In the book of Romans, chapter 11, it says that the people of Israel will turn as a nation back to God. It's gonna happen down the road, and Paul addresses that in the book of Revelation. It's a period where the Gentiles are coming to faith. They've been grafted in. So there's good things about it, Gentile people are coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but there's also a dark side to it where the Israelite people have rejected their Savior, and they've been experiencing the consequences of that. Look at verse 25. This is where I think he switches gears and goes into another dimension, into the distant future. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth now, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. We all know what that is, right? When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift your heads, because your redemption will be is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree. In fact, look at all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer's near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Isn't that great? Remember that one. So what do you do? Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Okay. Okay. There's a lot of stuff here starting in verse 25. It goes from historical things that are going on in Jerusalem to cosmic things that are affecting the whole world and the whole world is taking notice and so there's kind of an emphasis and a shift to cosmic apocalyptic type things. In the Old Testament in the book of Joel chapter two it says this, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Cosmic signs in the heavens that will be noticed by all. Know that things are coming to a close, these things are happening, again, to the entire world, not just Israel, not just Jerusalem and the people in that area, but it's, it's worldwide. See the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great glory. This is the physical, visible return of the Son of Man. Luke 19 says the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Well, this is the Son of Man coming again. To save everyone and bring this whole thing to a conclusion. This is all that has been prophesied. Daniel 7 verse 13 says this. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. The son of man coming in the clouds. There's that image that we have back there in the Old Testament. And then in Acts 1, 9 through 11, after Jesus had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid them, hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. One of the commentaries asked, why does Luke say cloud, singular, rather than clouds, in the clouds of heaven? One of the options, one of the possibilities was because in Acts 1 it speaks of a cloud. A cloud hid him from their sight and the angel said, just exactly the same way that you saw him go, he's going to return someday in the second coming. Be aware of that. These things, signs related to the consummation of all things. In verse 28, we're to to do something and we're to know something. Here's what you're to do, Jesus says. Stand up, lift up your heads. Posture of hope and confidence, that's what that is. That's what we're to do. What are we to know? Your redemption is drawing nigh. This is the end, the second coming. In that day you will know your redemption is here. This is the full implication of everything that Christ accomplished at the cross. It's coming full term. There's gonna be bodily resurrection of those who have died. There's gonna be the reigning of Jesus Christ on earth. This is it. Your redemption is drawing nigh. Then he uses the analogy of the fig tree and trees. He didn't curse the fig tree here, which he had done (laughs) earlier. He's going to use the poor fig tree as an analogy, so he's going to spare it. But he says, with the fig tree and all the trees, when they start to bloom, you know that summer's near. When you see these signs that I've been talking about, just know that the event is near. So that's the analogy of the fig tree that he uses. And he says, this generation will not pass away, verse 32. Lots of things written, what does he mean this generation? Well, clearly he doesn't mean the generation of the disciples, because when we talk about the second coming of Christ, it's still future, so it wasn't their generation that saw it. That word generation can mean people, so there's thoughts out there, maybe he's referring to the people of Israel, or the Gentiles as people, they will not pass away until you see all this come true or mankind. Um, I don't think that's a very good explanation. My view and the one that I go with is a reference to those who are alive when they start to see the signs of the end times, the second coming. That generation will be there when he returns. It's short. It's right around the corner. It's within a very short period of time that generation will see all of it come to pass. So this generation will not pass away, and there's one other thing that's not going to pass away. Jesus said in verse 33, my words. Heaven and earth are going to pass away. All that stuff is going to go. Everything that we have here in this life, guess what? It's going to pass away, but there's one thing that's going to last forever. Those are my words. Pay attention to what I'm telling you. And if there's anything we can hold on to today, there's a lot of stuff that's passing away. But God's word is going to remain faithful. He's saying, my word is true, it's permanent, and it's certain. Bank on it. Then, time is short. He's going to give us two warnings in verses 34 and 36, and both of them have to do with being ready. Be ready for the second coming. Be ready for his return. Be ready for the day when you pass from this world into his presence. Maybe his coming is down the road, but we might be there before that. So be ready, okay? And verses 34 and 36 give us two examples. Look at what he says here in these verses. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all who live on the face of the whole earth. He starts with a kind of a negative, negative watch yourself, the idea of watch yourselves. And he talks about don't get burdened down or distracted with things of this life or sin. And he speaks of carousing and drunkenness and the things that you can easily get involved in and the worries of this life and get focused on them. That word, by the way, carousing, is, literally means a hangover from a night of intoxication Pretty applicable, maybe, to today's culture a little bit. This idea of pay attention. Don't get caught up in that negatively. Watch yourselves. But then, verse 36, be on the watch. And here's what you're to be about. Be always on the watch. Pray that you may be able to escape all that's about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Be spiritually alert and pray. Pray. Pray without ceasing. We talked about this yesterday at our prayer gathering. Man, it's just a spirit of prayer and every time you meet, pray. Be spiritually alert to what's going on in this world so that you will be able to stand before the Son of Man. 2 Corinthians 1 says God is the one who makes us stand firm in Christ. So it's not me going, okay, I'm gonna stand firm in Christ, I'm gonna do my best. God does that in me, because I'm in Christ. It's the spirit that he's given me that helps me know with certainty that I'm his, and so I stand confidently before him on the basis of what he's done, not on anything that I bring before him. And then James 5.8, this idea of standing before the Son of Man, it says you two be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Time is short. The Lord is coming. It's near. I'm going to ask the men to come forward uh, for communion. Jeff Gold is going to lead us. One of the ways that we do this, besides prayer, is coming together as a community of believers regularly and celebrating and remembering the death of our Lord on the cross in the communion. So Jeff's going to lead us in that.